Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Mark Coven is an artist who embraces interdisciplinary and multimedia approaches to art making, using a wide range of unusual mediums, including bioluminescent fungi, wind turbines, and reactive computer interfaced installations. Mark's recent work explores anthropological behaviors, data collection and visualization, and renewable energy. He is engaged in finding out how art may become a component of real-world applications and problem-solving. Exhibitions of his work have been featured in the U.S. and abroad, including exhibitions at Flash Art Milan, Scope, London, and the Miami Art Museum. Mark is also an educator and teaches in the Department of Art and Design at Utah State University. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, first I have to tell you that uh, actually you have been sort of the inspiration behind this whole podcast idea. And it was a conversation that we had. It's probably been more than a year ago now. But you were uh, organizing some kind of interdisciplinary conference at Utah State, and you um, had called to talk to me about some of my work. We have a, a, a mutual colleague uh, who used to be, a, well, Mike Bankhead, who used to be our uh, department chair in music here, who's now at Utah State. Anyway, we made the connection and had a terrific conversation about art and working in an interdisciplinary way. And uh, as I recall, you had some pretty interesting ideas about intuition and art making, and we might, maybe we can revisit some of that uh, conversation. But uh, at any rate, after I hung up on the phone, uh, I thought, oh, I wish I had recorded that call. It was just so, so great, so inspiring and interesting and thought-provoking and I thought that's the kind of thing that I want to hear on the podcast when I'm, you know, uh, commuting to work or driving long on a long trip. And I thought, well, uh, I looked around and listened to other shows and thought, well, I guess no one else is going to do it. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> that is great to hear. I'm so glad. Um, and uh, that is the impetus behind a lot of the work that I do. So uh, I'm, I'm glad it actually had an effect. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I usually spend a little time up front of the show here getting some background before we jump into the, the body of your work and things specific to you. And there's so much to talk about, about with this, so maybe we can keep this segment brief. But the moment that I'm kind of interested in talking about with artists is that moment when you decided to pursue life as an artist. And maybe you can share some of the decisions or choices you made along the way that, that made that possible, or tell us just a little bit about your journey, and I'll leave that to you completely open wherever you want to go with it. Sure, certainly. Um, so uh, I actually, uh, believe it or not, I come from a family that is um, more business and, and science oriented than I, I probably have been in the last few decades in the sense that. Uh, you know, when I went to school, I, I wasn't even expecting to, even my, from my own perspective, expecting to go into the arts. And in fact, I hadn't had an art class since I was, I think, in fifth or sixth grade um, when I was in, in K through 12. And so when I went to college, my actually uh, area of, of focus was psychology and sociology. Those are the areas that I was really interested in. And I was a, a year, year and a half in when I ended up taking a, I think it was a requirement at the time, it's a little hazy, but I think I was required to take something out of my field, which was in the arts. I ended up taking a, a three-dimensional design class. And uh, I had discovered that not only did I just have a natural affinity to working with manipulating objects and materials um, I just you know truly enjoyed it and uh, I took another and another and lo and behold you know years later I ended up um, being a, an artist so it was um, 
I've, I've done a lot of other occupations in between, um, everything from construction worker to retail to managing, you know, pool companies and such along the way to make a living. But then uh, when I decided to actually do uh, art full time, um, it, it became what I guess, I guess about a decade and a half after I left school, it became a profession where I actually concentrated it. Up until then, I think it had been a love and, and perhaps even just a hobby. Uh, and um, basically because I'd never really come from a family that, I guess, saw the arts in that light. And so it was it was just really an epiphany for me when somebody said to me, uh, I, it was actually when I was working as a manager, they said, wow, that, that at the time I was doing um, some photography and, and work, uh, video, video, uh, sorry, cinematography and videography and film. And... They loved what I did, and I started shooting, believe it or not, uh, music videos for some friends. And that just took off into doing, going back into the arts and, and doing it more full time. And then um, years later, I went back. I, I got my master's in fine arts uh, fairly late, a uh, few decades after I was actually an undergraduate. And um, that's all she wrote. You know, once I started down that path, I never looked back. I just really went full tilt um, into the arts. Um, so that's how I got it. That's sort of the epiphany I had was, um, and, and the funny story is, um, so years later, after um, I was actually getting my master's, um, my mother actually started pulling out things from when I was in you know, kindergarten, first and second and third grade. All these awards that I had won for uh, for art and I had no recollection of it and so she uh, she actually um, brought these out and then it, it sort of like I guess it took me just a long time to get back to where I started so uh, did you have uh, support from family to to do this this path professionally as an artist or were they were, were your uh, family and friends sort of baffled by this idea or was this uh, seem like a natural progression or um, I think they're still baffled by it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, often, the most comments I get from my own family are so. So, what are you doing again? <laughs> so, um, so you know, they they really don't um, have a huge uh, understanding of what I do. But on that token, they're very supportive of me having this track. Um, they, you know, regardless of their their understanding or, or depth of understanding, they still are. Are very supportive and have been for for years. Great, great. I think it would be interesting and, and fun for me, uh, since th this was sort of the whole idea, of, you know, behind this thing, is to kind of revisit that conversation that we had long ago, over more than a year ago, and specifically to talk about this concept of intuition, because I often have said, as a as a composer and creative person myself, that. Um, that I work intuitively. And, uh, you know, when I said that to you, you said, well, do you really work intuitively? And then, and then you sort of launched into this idea and it really made me think, uh, well, do I work intuitively or not? Maybe, maybe I don't, maybe there's something going on there, there, you know, more than that. So can you talk about that, uh, concept for you? How, how does this work, uh, in your mind, intuition in art making? Sure. Sure. Um, you know, I vaguely remember us having this conversation now that you mention it. So essentially, uh, what I've always thought about, you know, when you ask an artist um, what they do, uh, you get various uh, explanations as to everything from the materials that they work with to the thought process to the, um, ma the materiality or let's say the the conceptual as well as the materiality and you get this really broad range when you ask an artist you know oh what what do you do um, for me that always is a tough question especially with some for somebody who's not in the arts and and so uh, years ago it made me try and sort of really think about this for uh, a while and figure out you know what what do I do and and typically I try not to really analyze too much what I myself am doing because Sometimes you get into over-analysis of the process and then it stops you from actually producing. But for me, um, what I think I started to recognize is that it just goes back and forth. And when people ask me, well, are you, do you start with a concept? Do you start with a material? 
and are you in, are you working intuitively? And so I started thinking about well, what does intuition actually mean? And so I, I spent a, probably too much time trying to define and look up and see the the, the various uh, permutations of what people interpret that to be. And I personally, just for me, I, again, I, you can only speak from from your own perspective. Um, for me, I think that intuition is sort of this amalgamation of past experiences, present occurrences, and thought processes that go on. So, you know, where where do where does my work, uh, the inspiration for what I do, come from? It's really like I guess what to, intuition refers to. You know, where where are you getting your ideas from? Uh, when you look at that work, where where did it spring from? You know, sort of like that chicken and the egg question. And when I started looking at my work, and this was maybe a good 20 years ago, what I came to was I was interested in everything, and I, it changed depending upon what that everything was. And so t intuition can be as simple as me watching or reading an article and then you know, it triggering a memory or triggering a thought. Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure if that's intuition, but when I'm working on the computer versus working uh, in the studio, you, know, you start with a plan. And then invariably, at least I do, for me, my process involves uh, variations on that plan. Um, often when I work on a project and I've brought it to fruition exactly how, how I envisioned it from start to finish, I'm less happy than than I am with a piece that actually has slight mutations or variations as I as I go through the the actual fabrication or construction of it. And so, whether it's a video piece or a photograph, uh, it's those intuitive moments which I think are based upon um, our past and present, uh, just understanding of our environment, understanding of, of what we're thinking, what we key off of. It's sort of like trying to figure out what. Well, you know, why do I like vanilla and other people like chocolate so much? You know, it, it could have been a past experience that I've had. It could be just a, a variation in physical uh, physio uh, physiology or, or our taste buds or, you know, chemistry. And so um, I, I think that when people say I work intuitively, there is no absolute intuition and there's no absolute conceptual, I guess, is, is my point or my perspective. Uh, and again, I, I when I talk to artists, and um, you were one of them, um, I often ask questions because I'm trying to understand how they work to see if it sort of relates and maybe can improve even my process. So, uh, you know, when, it, when we talk about what keys off, like why do I do what I do? Well, I can probably trace back what I think got me from there to here. But in all likelihood, there had to be variations that I was unaware of. And so that's the um, unconscious component that probably I, I, what, what got me into, I guess, learning about psychology and sociology to begin with, is that no matter how hard you really try and figure out what's going on, there's always going to be a variation that you're not going to be able to identify, that je ne sais quoi moment or whatever you want to call it. And so, you know, I think I, think I work sometimes intuitively. <laughs> I think um, I think I also work conceptually. I also think I work from a base of material. And when I think about, you know, when I, okay, so here's for instance, like we react to our environment. You know, whenever I've moved in the world of academic shuffleboard, whenever I go to a new job, you're 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 essentially dropped into a new environment. That new environment could be anything from uh, wet to dry, from uh, you know, coastal to inland. It could be, uh, uh, you know, uh, rural versus um, cosmopolitan. You could have uh, different new friends and colleagues that you're you're interacting with. Um, the so the landscape, the sociology, the uh, the environment itself all have their effects on me when I've moved. And so I find that it's really hard for me to, um, I guess. My, my work has moved around a lot because I've moved around a lot, not just in uh, physicality, but also mentally. And so I've shifted. You know, I'm always somewhat envious of artists who whose body of work has remained the same for like a few decades because 
typically I'm a, I like to do things once or twice or maybe even three times and then I, I have a tendency to you know look at something else and say oh wow fungus that's great or oh wow look at that magnetic bacteria oh and so I, I leapfrog my I, I find myself leapfrogging from project to project and not necessarily in a linear fashion um, I find that my process is probably the only linear aspect to my work and materiality is the least linear uh, which is why you know I'll be working with a scanning electron microscope right now which I'm working with to you know, 3D video to um, building wind turbines. Um, so, you know, intuition, I think, is a, is a really f hard thing to define when you start actually thinking about what created that that's sitting in front of you. I don't know if that answers your question or that is sort of the subject. I think it's a terrific answer to the question, and um, I think as you were uh, talking there, I was uh, right jotting down some notes of things that you said, and I, I think I would respond to that by saying uh, a couple of things. First, I've I've always thought with regards to music that there are basically two worlds in music. There's the craft of it, and then there's the artistic side of it. And sort of the craft side of it would be, you know, a craftsperson. Uh, probably the, the best example of that is an orchestral musician. Someone who goes in, they know exactly what they're supposed to do, they know exactly how it's supposed to sound, and they recreate it over and over and over again. Not, you know, uh, well, very similar to, say, a basket weaver who is making a, a baskets, and they want to make the same basket over and over and over again, and it's perfect and beautiful and and it has its place. Um, and then on the other side, you have the, the more artistic side. And that's not to say that one's better than the other, but they're sort of two sides of the same coin. And so on the artistic side, then you have, you're, you're making something, but maybe you don't know the end result. Maybe you have an idea of what it could be, but you're not sure. And I think I heard you say something uh, like that when you were um, giving your answer there, that some of the pieces that, that maybe have uh, been more interesting to you are the ones that didn't quite turn out the way you thought, or they worked in a slightly different way, or uh, caused you to make different decisions or something like that. Yeah, I would, I would, I would say that um, when it comes to, you know, I, there's a, a huge, I guess, uh, Come, having lived in Asheville, North Carolina, one of the things I was confronted with was the craft world. And to be honest, I, I had not had a lot of experience with the craft world. Uh, when somebody mentioned to me, oh, there's a maker's uh, convention coming up, I was like all excited thinking there was going to be technology, Arduino, and what they meant was makers in as craft. And so I was really shocked in just the variation in, in um, how we came to understand um, words. And so when I when I was confronted with this craft versus art, um, I I always was a little bit surprised that there was this, such a strong division on the part of the craftsman as well as a part of the artist. Um, because personally, I don't see a huge variation. Hmm. Uh, the art, the craft person or the craftsman, however you want to define them, the artisan to me is responding to the materiality of the of the work as well as the I guess the cultural anchorage that the work is being created in and the artist is responding to the exact same thing just has the opposite response. Hmm. Uh, one is utilizing and trying to understand the materials uh, and how and, and maybe has a, a slightly different uh, goal of, of functionality and beauty or aesthetics but the artist is doing the same thing um, just coming up with maybe the 180 solution but to from my perspective the same problem so when you bring up craft and the technician like you know you have a, a musician who can recreate sounds perfectly on a guitar but sometimes those variations that they they maybe either choose to do or make a mistake on those are the ones that I key off of personally because I I think it's, it comes maybe from we, uh, when I was a little kid, I used to look at Navajo weavings and they mm -hmm. always put an imperfection in them mm -hmm. uh, because you, you, you know, because of the gods, you didn't want to offend the gods. And right. so I thought of that, like uh, another friend of mine years ago said, uh, you know, she only likes art where she can see 
the waver of the hand and in, in the drawings. And so you know, when you think about that, it's, it's that sort of infusion. You can be very technical, but without that human quality of maybe mistakes or in, intended changes, I, I think that's where it becomes smarter or better than the artist even intended, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it also brings up the idea of interpretation, specifically with musicians, you know, uh, a musician playing the same piece who has a completely different interpretation, you know, that comes down to taste as well. But that I think that kind of goes in line with what you're what you're saying. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I wrote down one more thing, which I thought was great, and I, uh, three things that, that an artist does, and maybe maybe the most important one, and this is something that John Cage always said, was that he, he asked questions, you know? And I think that's a really important role of an artist, uh, is to, to ask questions. And then making decisions, and then reacting. And those are the three things, and you said those three things, asking questions, uh, making decisions, and then reacting. And that could be reacting to, you know, fill in the blank, could be in any number of things. Yeah, you know, that's um, that's really important because, I, I mean, I believe so because um, for me, uh, art is about asking questions and uh, art is about sort of uh, maybe posing things that can't typically be posed in another venue or in a different, um, let's say, area of study. And so, uh, in in art, you whether it's it's visual or performative or audio, uh, it allows you to ask questions in a way that don't become confrontational and also try and sort of get to the essence of something. Uh, maybe not through direct interpretation, but through a human understanding, like, you know, you, there's, I, I, what's that line from Manhattan, Woody Allen's Manhattan, I think anything worth knowing cannot be understood by the human mind. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, that, that really impacted me when I was a little kid when I saw that. And um, so I really think that I'm, I'm, I'm constantly trying to utilize my art to ask questions that typically really don't have answers, but it's really fun to ask nonetheless. Well, that's, that's a great transition into talking about some of your work. And uh, as I mentioned in my short introduction there, you've, you've been working to make art that, that integrates uh, art and science and using interdisciplinary experiences or processes that play out or data collection. And, you know, as I said, you've been kind of exploring ways in which art may become kind of a component in a real-world a solution or application, and I know I know that one area you focused on is ecology and sustainability. So I, I'd like to get into a little bit about how you work with that issue, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to. Uh, I found online at one of your uh, websites or bio uh, doing some research. I came across your list of three basic research objectives that center on this issue of ecology and sustainability. So if it's okay with you, uh, I think it might be interesting to maybe look at some of these objectives. Uh, we could sure, start start sure. with the first one and then maybe have you reflect on each one and sure. then or or tell about a piece that you feel like reflects on that idea. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay, so your first one says, and I'll just read it, Investigating ways to improve various types of renewable energy sources, specifically wind and solar, and their potential installation and application in unexpected and unique locales. Right. So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, has struck me um, years ago was how underutilized our urban uh, spaces are for power production. And there's there's been a little bit of progress in the last um, decade in this area. But back in 2005 and six, I actually was on um, two of my motorcycle trips. I, I ride, I used to travel across the country on a regular basis, spend, you know, just a month or two on the road. And in my travels, I came across this guy who was um, using uh, old car parts in Colorado to build uh, essentially homemade um, wind turbines. Uh, HOTS, horizontal access wind turbines. And when I was, um, I'm sorry, it was actually 2003, now that I think about it, wow. So, so what I was um, intrigued by was 
he had all these turbines out in his yard, um, but he he wasn't really capturing the electricity. He was just doing it for fun. And then I started looking into, uh, you know, we're we're typically uh, when when it comes to solar uh, wind power. We look at these big wind farms instead of how we as individuals can actually just start even on a small scale. I think uh, what, hap what happened to me was I started to think about how um, wind turbines could be, one, could be built relatively inexpensively at, at, uh, by an individual, two, that this could uh be installed near or in homes or even downtown and in, in cosmopolitan areas. And what was happening is I think there's this like all or nothing approach often in our, in our, um, I guess, thinking about energy. And so what I look for is, you know, every little bit counts. It's all a sliding scale. And so if you were able to create wind turbines, even small ones that could offset just, you know, maybe even 5, 10, 15% of what you consume in a household, you know, what would that look like? And so I started about designing small um, vertical wind turbines, VOTs, V-A-W-Ts. Uh, and the only difference between a hot and a vault is which way the, the blades are, are oriented. So a vertical axis is where the they're they're typically tall and slender. Uh, the most popular designs are the ones that look like a double helix that spin on a, on a center axis. And then the um, hots are horizontal axis wind turbines, which are the ones that they use in these big wind farms that you see um, in my area and, and all through the West. And I was like, well, you know, we don't have to be relegated to big corporations and companies. So one of the things I looked at, I started talking to um, uh, geologists, uh, environmentalists, and one of the things I, I was struck by, especially on a motorcycle, is when you go through canyons, you're, you're, you, it can be really windy sometimes. And what wind farms have done sometimes is they'll put the turbine farms at the mouth of a canyon, but no one actually puts turbines in the canyon uh, on the walls or up on the edges. And it's just really stri striking to me that we are thinking in terms of it's got to be big in order to make enough energy for everybody instead of just making energy for yourself. And so for me, it was, it, the inspiration was, well, how can I do this on mine? And so one of the couple of the pieces that came of, of these I guess thoughts were I, a piece that I was um, designed and we started to build it. It was actually chosen by uh, um, by the t city of Tampa um, as their public art project. But it happened just in 2007 and 8 when the uh, when the economy crashed, and so they actually lost funding. So we it only what we started to build the turbine, but it was never fully realized. But it was going to be a wind turbine that was downtown that had a playfulness of creating its own electricity that would also be a sort of a, a disc. Not only would it create electricity, but it would, be, it would be mirrored so it would have this fun capacity as well as a practical capacity of, of generating light for the, uh, a park downtown Tampa in Florida. Hmm. And when at the same time I was doing this, I was also designing miniature turbines. And some of these turbines, um, again, I, I have uh, what my wife likes to say. I like to mess with people, but in a fun way. And so one of the things I, I did was I created this whole series of work um, with wind turbines, with miniature wind turbines that then had the electricity uh, utilized in, in by flapping dragonflies and so dragonfly wings. And so it was this very... Um, I guess tabletop mechanisms, and they also turn into hang from the ceiling mechanisms where you would go up, and instead of them being outside, you would actually blow on the turbines. The electricity that was created from you blowing on the turbines would then create the flapping of the wings for the for the dragonflies. Oh wow! And the dragonflies themselves were um, utilizing two different techniques. One was using reciprocating gears that were three uh, D printed in addition to utilizing uh, a specific type of wire, it's called muscle wire, I don't know if you're familiar with it, 
but it's a, it's a type of wire that when you pass electricity through it, it constricts, and so it changes its length. And so by pulsating the electricity, you could actually create the wire from lengthening and, and shortening, lengthening and shortening, and so it would flap the wings. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Um, and then the last project I started working on with, um, this was probably my the most fun project when it came to turbines. Uh I had, um, I haven't, he's now nine, but at the time um, I had started uh, looking at playgrounds and I hooked up with the uh, North Carolina Mechatronics Division. It's part of the engineering division. And I started working with some of the grad students on designing a playground uh, piece that could be installed in just a regular kid's playground that would actually generate electricity. And, you know, when we talk about intuition or inspiration, I mean, you know, if you have kids, you'll know, anyone who has kids will understand that they are just boundless, filled with energy. And <laughs> so I was like, well, how can we convert this to actual real usable energy? And so what I did was I came up with a design with the uh, me- mechatronics division that was a, a uh, electricity generation uh, hang from merry-go-round that generated electricity, and the electricity that it generated uh, was going to be used for a sort of a, a tap LED light bright panel there, where they could play with the, the while they're playing on the merry-go-round generating electricity, they could go over to the tap panels and create messages on, on the on the board. Oh wow! And that, and that was, I have to say, one of the most fun projects I've worked on. It it was extremely well received. And I probably could have sold that as an actual object in state and local parks and city parks, but honestly, like it was, it was a lot of work. It took uh, a, a probably over a year and a half to design it and fabricate it, and there was um, at least eighteen to twenty people who helped work on the project, wow. um, the construction of it. it. It was a very, very time-consuming project, but it was a great project and. Um, so that, so that, you know, that strange perspective I have of filling perceived gaps is also something that I look for in my art. So that, that's sort of the energy component of what I look for. Um, I'm, I've been working with solar panels here and there. Uh, the only reason that I, I use small solar panels to power some of my tabletop 3D printed objects that are interactive, but other than that, they're they're usually relegated to the inside. Fantastic. And uh, as you were talking, I was sort of following along on your website and looking at some of these pieces. So uh, if anyone is listening and wants to sort of put images with uh, with what you're saying, they can go to your website, uh, markcoven.net. Uh, the piece you were just talking about, play generation, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's go on to point number two. Um, the point Your point number two says, integrating art with the sciences... Sorry, integrating art with the sciences with the resultant of art becoming an integral component with the sciences in identifying problems and collecting data in preparation towards finding solutions. Yeah, so um, this is actually probably the uh, the most recent and current body of work that I've been working on over the last, like, um, I'd say, five to ten years. So the inspiration or the beginning of this came about when I was um, at Florida State University and I was working with some some people over there and I was interested in working with bacteria and, and I then I ended up going to Asheville and working with fungus and uh, bioluminescent materials uh, and, and uh, uh, all sorts of fungus that they have. And I started thinking, you know, I'm, here I am using materials and looking at things that science scientists look at, and I, I w- had always been interested in artists that play with science. And I myself, with in collaboration with Derek Curry, we developed a project called Projected Growth, um, uh, and another one called uh, the Tulip Bubble. Um, Tulip Bubble was a piece where I, I sort of dove in with um, with science, where we're looking to actually use new techniques and and coming up with new species of tulips, and then creating a sort of a, a intervention piece based upon these new species that would uh, inhabit uh, foreclosures and such because of the the 
toilet there was a huge I, I don't know how familiar you are with the toilet bubble um in Europe in the late 1500s but yeah. essentially yeah. yeah so so that was the inspiration and talking to my brother who is also um uh, he's in not an economist but he is has been in business for for years and banking for years and so talking to him that was my first dive into science but again it was getting together with a scientist who could then do the work and the art was still more commentary than it was integration and um, at the time um, I think I was feeling a bit frustrated over how art consistently um, more often than not is about commentary and asking the questions rather than actually coming up with any um, or even attempting at solutions and so even a lot of the artists who are interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary or whatever you want to call it or you know uh, or even collaborative across the sciences typically they're relegated to the arts and the sciences are, are doing the science and there's not a lot of interaction or exchange uh, and and what I found was our scientists would come to me and say, "Hey, I hear you. You, you know, work with scientists. I need this. I have this information. Can you help me figure out a way to educate people or visualize it?" And so, after a few years of this, I decided, you know what? I I'm not happy just being at the tail end of things. I want to actually be at the instigation of where these research initiatives begin. And I started to actually approach scientists that had not approached me and, and asking, so what do you do? Like, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And lo and behold, I started actually finding people who were really doing some amazing stuff. And I asked them, um, you know, have you thought of this? Have you thought of that? And a lot of, a lot of times they had, but once in a while you get somebody who said, no, I haven't tried that. And I, I would prompt them with, saying, well, would you want to try something that's collaborative? And it took many years. I have to say it's it's taken a lot of time for a trust issue of, of scientists to trust artists and, right, and right. such. But once you break that barrier, um, uh, communication also being an issue because the way we communicate in the arts and versus how scientists communicate can be very different. Um, but once you get past some of those barriers, you find that uh, you can create some really amazing projects that go beyond just the, the mere commentary of, of after the fact or the, the hey, look at what they're doing. This is really cool effect. And so um, about eight or nine years ago when I was at University of South Florida, I got the idea of having uh, sort of scientists and artists do a, a joint collaborative projects together with myself taking lead in the projects. And it's been a while for me to, to actually um, get it going. But some of the what I've been interested in doing is, okay, so with data collection, you know, typically when you think about data collection, it's a phone call, it's a piece of paper that's filled out with a questionnaire, it's um, counting, it's observation, and then counting of that observation or, or you know, trying to categorize things based upon either a physical or, or something that you, uh, some sort of, of characteristic or trait. And I was like, well, you know what? In the arts, we are constantly asking people to do things, to either to look at something or to stop and smell or, or listen like well you know it's the same thing how can we how can we or i utilize this as a way to sort of instead of people going oh i don't want to fill out a questionnaire it become more entertaining and one of the things i've always said about my work is my work is designed for interaction in the sense and and a playful interaction at that i i want the person to walk away feeling that um they didn't waste their time or they at least had some fun while they were doing it and so um, one of the things that I started working on uh, is sociology and psychology. I sort of came full circle to what I wanted to do when I first went to college. I looked at the so-called so soft sciences to see if they're collecting information on, let's say, climate change perception. How can that become an art project? How can we utilize what I consider to be some of the more more uh, important or tangible components of art to uh, help the scientists or come up with our own data sets. 
And so one of the earlier projects that I, and again, sometimes I understand the, the uh, inspiration behind it and sometimes I don't. Uh, I, I think a lot of people who say that, who claim that they know exactly where and how a piece was inspired is probably um, fibbing on somewhere because our, our memories are faulty at best. But that being said, I think um, when you when I started um, a piece in 2003, um, it was, uh, called, I'm sorry, 2008, it was a, a piece called a Stone's Throw. And a Stone's Throw, um, I was really intrigued in looking at the response of people um, and I would even say maybe an early piece in 2003, which was a piece called Come, which uh, had uh, set up sort of this. And also, I understand I was reading a lot of scientific theory. Um, uh, Kuhn's was one of the ones I was reading. And it was a lot of work, a lot of reading I was doing about how scientific, uh, I guess, um, progress is, is made. And so I was thinking, okay, so how can I set up a situation or a paradigm and then shift somebody's perception or paradigm? And so for a good decade, that's inspired uh, a slew of different work, everything from cream, uh, an ice cream piece to come to a, a piece that, you know, in, in come you had uh, actors and actresses bumping up against uh, individuals in the in the audience who were there would stand too close to see what the reaction was. And I would, I was re recording their, their reaction to see if I could sort of extrapolate what their thought, pro what they were experiencing in a stone's throw. Um, you, you had to create a, a skipping stone and then take someone else's skipping stone that had been already created ahead of you and make a choice between smashing it into dust again or skipping it across uh, the sand inside the gallery space. So um, these, these, instead of having something that they filled out, the, the, the installations themselves, the artwork became sort of tests or uh, I guess ways to ask the question and then to get the answer by just observing their behavior. And uh, the, that took shape. Um, those spurned a whole another series of work which um, got me more involved in working with um, climate models and uh, scientists who are looking at the perception, people's perceptions and belief systems, which is essentially a perfect match for art, I think. I think when you're talking about perceptions and beliefs, art is, to me, the perfect way to try and ask these questions because it diffuses the heaviness of the question and allows a person to be a little bit more free and even open to information, open to uh, looking at their own behavior and interpreting it. I think it just becomes, you know, less intimidating and, and less of a closed environment. It, become, it doesn't become as sterile. It's, it's more humanistic. And so with art, you know, you have, you can touch things, you can make reactive work, you can make things that smell, you can make things that um, sound or audio, you can have them react from everything from uh, humidity to dryness. You can have people actually do an activity. And that's that's where my work is is and has become is sort of this scientific experiment where uh, I probably should go through IRB approval, but I often don't. <laughs> but I view I view my audience as sort of test subjects in some ways. Yeah. Where I'm able to get a cross section, at least of maybe not an accurate cross section of uh, the population, but depending upon where it is, like if you did an installation in a in an empty retail space in a um, mall, you know, you would get a really good cross section of people instead of just getting people who are going to a, a museum or a gallery opening. And so that's where my work is um, then and has become more integrated with the sciences in the sense of it is becoming a, a not just a representation of it or a visualization of it, but actually it's at the beginning, at the forefront of being used as a tool that then it can collect information and data that then also be, can be turned into a visualization. And a it has this, like for me, a beautiful cyclical nature to it where the tool itself becomes also the the visualization and the educational component all in one. 
Uh, your third point, which I think you probably uh, have touched on already, but I'll go ahead and read it and have you respond here. Um, sure. Your third point says, with art and design's ability to translate and impart data directly and indirectly through the visual and experiential, activities involve experiential mechanisms of persuasion and social engagement. Right. So one of the things I've always um, loved about film is the sensory... Um, I guess the, the deprivation that you have, you, you basically are in a dark room. Uh, you have uh, a screen, you know, a bright uh, series of images flashing in front of your face, and then you have the sound component. Somewhat like a concert, I, I, when I thought back about how to influence people and what and how to get people to sort of relax and maybe be more receptive to information, I thought about. Um, in what situations does that happen to me? And so typically, like when I think about things that have moved me, it's either like a physical book that I've been reading where it allows my, my brain to fill in the gaps and uh, I can make up the voices. You know, I, I personally, I mean, I understand why, why a lot of people uh, listen to books, but I personally, it's not my choice just because I, I, I can't get it. I can't, I just don't engage with it as much. Um, with a book, I can like, you know, envision sort of what the characters look like. Well, movies and, 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 uh, concerts or, or music have always been one of those things that are temporal in nature. Meaning I remember when I, you know, like when you hear a song, it takes you back to a time or a place. When you think about a movie, it takes you back to a time or a place or it, it, it keys off these memories. Even much more so than I think than a lot of visual art, at, at least for me. And so I started thinking about um, this is where sort of why the inspiration of me doing installations versus just photographs. Because I used to do photographs and, and, and such a lot. And then I realized that one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to actually impact the viewer a little bit more and sort of connect with them. And one of the other things that I found was, you know, okay, when I'm doing something physical, I typically, especially if it's out of context, I'll remember that more. And I'll never forget this. This is actually, uh, I have to give uh, credit where credit is due. There's this group called Superflex who is fantastic. I mean, they're one of my favorite art groups. And it was in 2004 in Art Basel, um, a friend of mine had, uh, uh, well, she was at the, at the Art Basel, she had said, oh, I got this great installation that, that I want you to see. And so she um, pulled me down this corridor and um, she actually wasn't talking about Superflex, she was actually talking about another one. But I was like, wait, 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 I got to see this. And so what Superflex had done was they had set up this a uh, series of booths with where you go in and you package, you help them package pudding packs, um, orange and, and, uh, and vanilla flavored pudding packs. And you, 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 uh, sealed, you sealed the packets and you put them in the boxes and then you stacked it where it had to be stacked. And for your efforts, they gave you some pudding that was made by them or somebody else that came before them. And I was like, I, I remembered that for like years because it was so out of place in terms of um, you know a sterile environment of where you walk around a gallery and you just look at art on the wall. Yeah. And so from then on I vowed to make sure that my work had some sort of interactive quality to it where there's a where there was a, a necessity on the viewer to have a physical interaction with the work so that it, it stuck in their mind, um, whether it was a performative piece or whether it was a physical piece or whether it was a static piece that required them to move, uh, which was, again, the inspiration for the female gape series where um, you had to, you, ha you have to basically, when lenticular photographs, um, everybody knows what they are, they just don't know the name. It's like those old baseball cards where you turn it and the batter swings. But I thought, mm -hmm. well, Let's 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 get in, let's start making art that activates the viewer instead of deactivating them by by giving them sort of these static objects. So when I talk about that third point, that third point is about utilizing what I see as some of the most important aspects of my art, whether it's other people's art or not, in the terms of dealing with the the haptic aspects of it, getting the the people involved in the work. Um, you know, having a room that maybe changes in smell 
based upon where they're standing or what they're touching or maybe where they stand in one area it's hot and dry and and cold and and uh, wet in another area and so all these like how can you affect the, the individual to embed that memory so that they maybe a year or two later go huh I remember that you know how do you key off memory so for me, the arts have that wonderful ability to cross all those boundaries, either in one piece or multiple pieces. And I, I, I personally feel that it's it's underutilized in the sciences, and, and that's sort of where that third component comes from, is mm-hmm. wanting to be able to use what I consider to be the, uh, you know, you can't close your ears, you know. Um, we all walk around with earbuds on because we're trying to drown that other sound, but, you know, typically you're you're um as a sound artist you know one of the things i love about using sound is it permeates everything i mean it that's the horrible thing about it for some but that's the great thing for me is no matter what you do it it permeates your physicality you can feel it you can hear it um and so that that i think is something that i'm looking more and more to increase on the these concepts that i'm talking about will be part of the exhibitions coming up in august and september um, in Albuquerque and, and North Carolina. Can you can you talk a little bit more about about that? These upcoming things that you have. Sure. Um, one of the things I'm doing right now is creating uh, 3D printed objects that are responsive to the viewer uh, or the the person holding them. So essentially, if you pick it up, uh, it actually responds in, in either vibrating or um, misting out uh, some geosmin. Uh, odors, which geosmin is the 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 sort of the earthy smell that bacteria excrete when it starts raining. So you know oh. when you yeah, so when you smell rain, that's the smell you're smelling is the geosmin being created by the bacteria in the ground. Oh, wow. And the bacteria in the ground that is creating it are typically the type of bacteria that we use to create our uh, our antibiotics. And so you know this is when I when I start researching something. When it starts to have multiple layers like that, that's when I start to get intrigued by it. Like all these unknown things that become known, or you can make visible. And so the so these so these objects are going to be essentially changing or altering themselves in the palm of the person holding it, uh, or changing the environment uh, if they touch it or, or move in specific ways. That's one body of work that's that's going to be, in, and all these objects are also going to be based upon data sets. So, for instance, if you were to create a piece that looked at the rainfall um, over a period of a year and created a, a cup or a object that had a visualization of that data, but also reacted to the person's present presence or touch of it, um, that talked about rain, whether it you know, sprayed you with water or whatever it might be, or created a, a more humid environment around you. That that's sort of the connection I'm trying to make with people. So there's a a visualization aspect, that there's a physical aspect, and then there's an environmental component to the work. Then another piece I'm doing, which is for a Block Party, which I'm really excited about, called called Habitat, which is held um, or or done by. Uh, 516 Arts in Albuquerque in September. It's a one one afternoon event, and uh, it's going to be fantastic. There's um, 12 different artists that have been chosen to show in this ex- this outdoor exhibition in conjunction to their uh, other show that's going to be opening a few weeks before, which is the work I've just described. And this is going to be a dome-like structure. Um, I don't know how familiar are with uh, projection domes where you walk in. It sort of looks like a igloo. So inside, sure. right? So so this project um, is going to have a much more physical component to it, as well as a, a visual component. So I'm creating imagery that will be shown on the inside of this dome that will re- relate to uh, severe um, weather conditions, every you know, drought and flood conditions, and in conjunction with that, there will be a requirement, not a requirement, the, the people who are going in and out will be asked to fill uh, small sandbags. And when they go into the space, they'll actually be communally building uh, a structure inside the dome with the sandbags. Hmm. And so there's this um, physical thing where they're filling sandbags and moving moving them into the interior space and then communally building something while being impacted with this information and imagery 
dealing with with the severe weather conditions and mm. and, and such. You know, is so it's so funny. Like I was j- joking this past weekend. It's one of the few times I've actually seen a hundred percent chance of precipitation. Uh, you know, you always people. I think there was an NPR uh, story a few months ago about how people really don't even understand what it means by you know fifty percent rain chance of rain. <laughs> so, um, so one of the things I'm I'm interested in doing is not just educating the public, but also collecting um, information from them. Uh, and so through this activity and looking at the information. Will their perception of weather or their environment change? So before they go in, the two things will occur. They'll be asked to fill out a brief questionnaire, three questions long, just check, check, check. And they'll also have their temperature literally taken. So they will have their temperature taken, and then when they go through and come out, uh, their temperature. Will, we're going to see if there's a variation in their temperature from when they go in, from when they come out, hmm. and so there's going to be a, an also environmental component inside where there's going to be a humidity shift inside the, the dome. So that that's essentially what um, I'm interested in doing is utilizing again these art events or these installations as a way to educate, but also more importantly, find out you know did the, was the person affected at all. You know, they'll, so they'll come out and they'll look at their questionnaire and say, "Well, does this match up with what I, with what um, went in there, or has has it changed?" Yeah. And so that, so that's that's sort of the the, the project. And then, sorry, I go on about this. The, the, no, that's okay. Project. Go ahead. And then the North Carolina exhibition will be um, that's I'm part of a, a, a six person group show called Microcosm, which is. A um, all about microbes and the the, the very small everything from um, insects and, and bacteria and fungi fungi, and my work specifically will be a piece called uh, spit culture. And actually, I have several pieces there. One will be called spit culture. Um, spit culture is essentially uh, eighteen to twenty four petri dishes based upon the socioeconomic levels in that area it's it's specific it's site specific to the to the air region and within those petri dishes will be a growth medium and they'll all be labeled with the various um, stratifications of the economic income and as uh, gallery goers come in, their job essentially is to contribute to the spit in the corresponding petri dish, and it's it comes um, and then there's a, a video microscope which they can that that is in place that they can move around and look at other people's um, bacteria from their mouth and it becomes this sort of funny collection of bacteria based upon socioeconomics, but also a way for people to see what the socioeconomic structure is. Um, in the area uh, by seeing where the most spit might occur and um, and so this is all projected onto a screen across the thing so you can actually see it as it's growing day to day if you're to, oh, wow. to track it. And then the other pieces I'm going to have are some SEM images, scanning electron microscope images that are stereoscopic. I wanted to find out, um, you know, when we talked about materiality, for me, tools are a material. So anytime I can try and push a, a tool to its limit or beyond where it's typically was intended to do, that's where I think I'm successful as well. Hmm. And so what I'm doing with the SEM is I'm trying to utilize that as a way to, believe it or not, video uh, uh, these specimens that are dead, but nonetheless create sort of a motion or three-dimensionality to them. And so I'm moving the SEM as I'm filming and and trying to see if it can create motion through either a lenticular image and or stereo pairs. And so I'm also montaging them. So they're, they're, they're lands, to me, it's almost like building a, a landscape. But to me, I mean, they're so beautiful. And I hand color them through, or hand color them. I digitally color them by hand, I guess is the better way to say it. And then they're printed uh, through a, a typical um, inkjet system, and then you view them through stereo viewers. Uh, and then the the last series uh, will be a series of lenticular images that are that are essentially um, these stereo pairs as well as the motion of the the bacteria through the space. Well, uh, one of the things I wanted to respond to was something that you said earlier about uh, you know wanting to move your audience and uh, 
it, it, it just jarred this uh, quote from John Cage that I remembered reading where he said one time that he liked to be moved, but he didn't like to be pushed. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that quote. And, yeah. you know, that is, um, I, I'm glad you brought him up a couple times because he is, you know, while I, I might have difficulty sitting there listening to some of his compositions, I, conceptually he is one of my favorite um, artists to look at or emulate. And I, I think what I, I guess I, 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 what I say is I don't, I, I like to influence, but I don't like a two by four across the head. Yeah. I, so, well, I think what I wanted to say though about you, uh, about your pieces is that you seem to be finding that, uh, that fine line, you know, nothing that I've read about your pieces. I haven't got to experience any of these pieces personally, but just what I've read and, and seen online and, uh, and read about your works. Like you seem to be finding that fine line that you're not pushing people. You're, you're just making suggestions and providing an experience. And that, and that is exactly what I'm trying to do. And thank you for saying that because that is really what it's about for my, for me, it's all about the experiential aspect of it of what the person comes away with. I want them to enjoy it. I don't want it to be tedious. I don't want it to be, you know, like the, watching the movie The Red Desert, Antonioni's The Red Desert. It, it's a great film, but it's tedious. And yeah, so, yeah. you know, I'm I'm interested in, you know, having the person come away. Not I'll never forget this. I had one of my cinematography professors tell me years ago, you don't want the person to walk away um, wishing they had those like five minutes of their life back, and <laughs> and it's true. And so yeah. I'm, I really do try and make things that are either fun, entertaining, but also have a deeper uh, sensitivity to what I'm trying to impart. And I, I, you know, I am successful sometimes. I think some works are more successful than others. I think um, I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, I remember a, a gallery owner told me, um, you know why don't you make a mechanism that moves the lenticular image for the person instead of then having to move in front of the piece? And so when somebody says that to me, that tells me that they're really missing the whole point of the work in the sense that, you know, for me, my one of my favorite pieces was a, a series of, of work that I did where it was one second of video embedded in a lenticular photograph and there were 60 panels that made you walk through it and you had the sort of you could your body was moving it forward and backwards through time. Hmm. And so, you know, that whole aspect of of engaging the audience through, you know, when you're when you're listening to music, you want to move. Like if it's something that you're enjoying, you want to thump your th finger or, you know, tap your toe or or move to the music itself. And so, you know, that's that's the way I perceive um, both audio and visual art. Yeah, there, there's, uh, you know, a handful of experiences that I uh, can count, either going to a gallery or a show or a concert or whatever, that were uh, really just, I don't know if life-changing, but certainly uh, things that I that resonate with me long after the event. And I remember, uh, I want to just share one of those with you since you were kind of sharing that earlier. Um, there is this piece uh, that's in the Blanton Museum in Austin. That's the Museum of Art at the University of Texas. And there's this piece by a Chilean artist. Her name is Isabel Del Rio. And it's called 2,244 Modulos, or Modules. And... I saw this piece for the first time. So to set the stage, you walk into the gallery and it's this huge stack of these plaster, white plaster bricks. And they're, they're a bunch of stacks of these things. And it just takes up the whole floor, you know, and it's sort of roped off and, and they're stacked. And on each block is uh, printed, I believe it's printed a date on each one. And so the idea was that this piece physically sort of registers the passage of time that over a period of like six months, she set the task of making these plaster tablets. So every day she would make a tablet, stamp it with the date and stack it. And so you get just hundreds and hundreds of these. I mean, there, there are tons of these things. Uh, someday she made more than one, she, but, you know, she would make at least one every day. Um, anyway, you can, you can go look this up to get the full idea. But I remember that piece. It had such a strong effect on me because I would look at, oh, I remember what I was doing on that day. Or, oh, there's my birthday or, you know, whatever, you know, uh, you sort of have this, uh, you know, passing of time visualized for you. And you don't often get get to see that 
And it right. sort of reminds me of some uh, some of your work, what you were saying, uh, visualizing some, uh, you know, some data set or something. Well, here is six months worth of time represented by these blocks. It took a certain amount of time to make each block, you know, and all of that's laid out, all of that's in the description, you know, so you can think, wow, this took a really long time to make this thing, you know. Well, you, you hit on something which um, I think is really important, uh, which is personalizing it. I think uh, when art is is the most successful is when there's a connection made between the audience and, and the art itself. And for me, it comes down to uh, it's something that scientists have known all along or have known for the or been concentrated on for the last decade or so. In order for people to understand uh, global climate change or understand issues or problems, it has to be personalized for them to understand it. It has to like you have to show pictures of their house underwater. Otherwise, they're not going to really relate to it. And just as you were talking about how you looked at the date of your birth um, as one of the bricks, that's sort of like what what I refer to. You know, with the skipping stone. You know, typically a lot of people skip stones or, or look at things like that, and so it. It correlates with a memory, and if you can, if you can make that connection, if you can make uh, a connection with the person's experience, past or experience um, that they've had, then that's when that becomes memorable. That becomes um, something that also it gives you that sort of crack into their psyche where they'll remember the piece. And it's, I think, with music, it's sometimes easy because we listen to the same song over and over again. And it's it's more obviously more portable than than visual art, and in that in that sense, you know, you, you'll remember. Oh, I remember when I was listening to that. So I went to that concert. I went. To this, I was doing this when I heard that, and that's what I look for in the arts: is that ability to make that connection, so that you can personalize the information, and the person doesn't just walk away saying. Yeah, I know about global climate change, but whatever. No, they'll be able to have a picture of their house underwater and and know, oh, that's what's going to happen. That type of thing is what I, I'm interested in doing with the arts and science. Yeah. Fantastic, Mark. Lots of, lots of things to think about and unpack here in this uh, episode. I think we should uh, wrap things up, uh, but I always like to close by getting a little bit of advice or guidance, however you want to think of it, on the topic of how does one live and sustain a creative life? Hmm. Okay, that's a, that's a great question. Um, for me, I think uh, it's just never giving up, I guess, never losing sight of what you're really interested in doing. And so I think uh, in terms of myself, I really... I love creating and working within a field that allows you flexibility. And luckily for me, uh, I've had enough success so that I can continue doing what I'm doing. Um, but I think if, if you're just starting out, it, it's really hard, I think, to maintain that belief in yourself. But for me, it uh, it's just comes down to having a goal, like sort of knowing like, okay, this is what I think I want. I may not get there, but this is the direction I'm going. And so this is something that I think is really important for sustaining a, a belief system or sustaining yourself in the creative process. Um, everything is, you know, Joseph Boy saying everything is a creative process. Um, we're all artists in some way, shape or form. And so I, I really think that even, even an economist can be creative in their process. And so I, I think, um, when I think about sustaining one's, I guess, creative process, I think about just the the beauty that you can create around you as well as the, let's say, the enlightenment you can give others when they see your work. Fantastic, Mark. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really ha glad that we had a chance to do this again. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.